if you've got a Bible with you, please turn to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. If you have a device and you didn't bring a Bible with you, please feel free to open that baby up, turn it on, find your favorite Bible app and get over to Jonah chapter 2. Um, We are in our series in the book of Jonah, and what we've seen so far in Jonah is that Jonah is what we've kind of called the naughty prophet, right? Like, Like he's the one who just doesn't want to get things right. God has said, go, and he has said no, and he's actually, he's turned his back, and he's run the complete opposite direction. And what we saw last week was that Jonah, he was running away from God, stiff-necked, no remorse, eyes set to Tarshish, and his back was towards the Lord. And all he wants to do is he wants to disappear so that maybe God would forget about him and maybe even that he would be able to forget about God. But all along the way, we have said that in God's sovereignty, he sends a storm on the ocean. This was God's doing and it freaks everybody out. It freaks the sailors out and uh, except for Jonah because Jonah is down deep in the boat and he's not worried about anything. The mariners and the sailors, they find out that Jonah has been, uh, he's been repping God but at the same time, he has been disobeying God. He's saying, I am a follower, follower of Yahweh, but I am not following Yahweh. And we find out that this storm that's on the ocean is actually there because of Jonah's sin. He has done this and God is calling him to account for this. And so now you've got these pagan sailors who are asking what I think is a very poignant question for the moment right now. They start off and they ask him a couple. They say, who are you? Where are you from? What are you doing? What do you do? All these different questions of when you're getting to know somebody, want to know what's going on. And the question is what Jonah needed to hear because the words that came out of his mouth is what needed to be resonating in his mind. He said, I am Hebrew. And when he said that, that meant I am a child of God. And he was reminded of who he is. And then he follows up with what he's doing. And then the next question is a question that penetrates straight to, I think, begins to penetrate into Jonah's heart for what's getting ready to take place in his life. They ask him, they say, then what have you done? You are a Hebrew. You are a follower of God. You say you're a prophet of God. Then what are you doing? Why are you running from him? What have you done? And Jonah says, listen, guys, the best way to get rid of this problem is just to get rid of me. And so he tells them to throw them over the boat. If they throw them over the boat, the whole thing goes calm. And that's exactly what they do. These pagan guys, they don't want to do it. They're calling out to every God that they know. They don't want to commit murder on Jonah. But Jonah said, throw me over. And so eventually they throw him overboard and the sea calms down. Calms down. I think that brings us up to speed, right? Did we leave out any major details to get us to where we are this morning? Okay, then we'll keep going. So here's the focus. We'll just give it to you straight up. Drifting away from God. That's what we're talking about this morning. Drifting away from God. And you might say, well, that sounds pretty ominous. That sounds uh, a little bit serious. And to that, I would say, yeah, it is. It really is. Drifting away from God is very serious. When we get into chapter two of Jonah, guys, this is heart level stuff. Um, We've seen Jonah running and we're seeing him being called to account, but it's not just heart level for Jonah. As we dive into chapter two, this is heart level for us. 2000 plus years later, as we sit here gathered as a body of Christ in Ashland, Nebraska, Riverview Community Church, this is just as relevant to us as it was to Jonah. And it calls us to, to encounter a God who, who, who calls us into obedience, 
who calls us into following him and finding our life in him. And so this very well might be one of the most challenging and provocative chapters in scripture as Jonah is sitting here floating around in the ocean. So I want you to track along with me and, and see if you can follow along in my brain and how my brain works a little bit. This week I was uh, thinking about the beach, um, getting away to the beach. Anybody think about the beach this week? Just kind of kind of going, yeah, one, one person, yeah. Y'all, y'all familiar with the beach? You're looking at me like you don't even know what that is. You know, we're stuck here in, in the Midwest and you haven't seen water in a while, I, I know, right? But there are beaches if you travel a little bit and you can get on some, some sand. But I was thinking about the beaches uh, this weekend. When you get to the beach, you're kind of excited about what's going on. You're there, you're on vacation, you lay your towel down and um, you don't care. You just run out to the water as fast as you can. You got your arm floaties on, right? And you got the, the, the strip of white down your nose to make sure the sun doesn't get you. Maybe you don't have arm floaties, but you're heading to the water. Don't, don't fight the sun or don't let the sun get you. Use that white stripe down the nose, okay? But you're running to the water and you get all the gear ready and the towel is on the, the beach and you run into the water and you're riding the waves and you're dangling your feet around, hoping that you don't get bit by a shark or stung. But you know, y'all know that like it's shark week, right? Like, like in, in our house, like, like things are dying like crazy. Like sharks are eating everything. I'm like, what do we do? Like, why are we watching this? But sharks are just eating everything and biting people. And, and so we still go to the water. What's wrong with us, right? But you, got to go to, you guys don't go to the beach anyway, so I guess it doesn't matter. Um, so, but like you're hoping that you don't get bit by uh, a shark, but you're playing and you're frolicking. And then uh, all of a sudden you look up a little while later and your towel's gone. You're like, wait a minute, who stole my towel? Like what happened here? But you're looking around and nothing looks familiar to you. The lifeguard shack that was right there just a few minutes ago and you had put your towel right there by the lifeguard shack and now the lifeguard shack and the towel is gone as well. But the deal is nobody stole your stuff. You took your eyes off of it for a minute and then what happened? You drifted, didn't you? You drifted down the, the shoreline and you know what we're talking about this morning? We're talking about drifting away. Do you kind of see where we're starting to go? You take your eyes off of it for a minute. And then before you know it, you're far away from your town, you're far away from the shack, and you're far away from what you've been going after. And I don't think any one of us sets out to drift. I don't think any one of us does. But sometimes we look up and everything in our life just looks different than it's supposed to look. We've taken our eyes off for a second and then everything has changed. Can I tell you guys, like our spiritual gaze is supposed to be set on Jesus. Over and over and over, we read in the scriptures, look at Jesus, keep your eyes on Jesus, focus on Jesus. But yet in our world, in our world, the culture that we're living in right now, our gaze as at best sometimes turns into a glance. We look at Jesus quickly and then we move on. We, we look at Jesus, we take our eyes off him and then we're further and further down the coastline. We're further and further away from where we wanted to be. We start to drift. Scripture says, look at Jesus, and we start to take our eyes off, and then our, glaze, our gaze um, has turned into a glance. And sometimes we don't even look at all. And for believers in the room, I have no doubt that most of us know this internally. I know that we know that we're supposed to keep our eyes towards Jesus, but the hard part is for us to live that out in reality. Because there's so many things that's pulling against us at all, at all, the, all the time. So many things, so many distractions pulling against us. We have people who want to take our focus. 
people who are challenging that want to take our focus, things that uh, promise popularity and, and value and things that we end up chasing after, like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll run after that and see if that's going to give me everything that it promises. I'm going to go after that. Friends that live differently than you do, and it causes this internal conflict and struggle because your conscience now that's been formed by the Holy Spirit is being challenged by the way that somebody else lives. And so the convictions that you have and that have been set are now a challenging to you because of how people are living around you. The devices that constantly have the lure of lust and attention and connection and all the things, right? All the things that come with a device, our phones in our pockets, our iPads and watches and everything that we're carrying around with us that are supposed to help us are things that distract us. And King Solomon talked about this in the book of Proverbs more than once. He talked about avoiding the sensual woman that calls you down the street away from your home. Time and time again, we read in the Proverbs, don't chase after it. Don't lust after her. Don't go after this. And who knew that it wouldn't be just this physical woman that we would be struggling against but it would be our devices that we carry around in our pockets, the lure of lust and connection, the thing that lures us down the street away from our home, the thing that takes our gaze away from Jesus and causes us to glance maybe at him every once in a while. Who knew that it would be the device that we carry around with us? There are so many distractions that are pulling our eyes away from Jesus. And scripture calls us to have safeguards, to put guardrails in our life, to, to use um, wisdom, and to fix our eyes on Jesus so that, for one purpose, so that we will not drift away and find ourselves looking for our towel down, down the coastline. I think one of the greatest dangers that we have in our faith today is slowly drifting. It's the slow drift. It's the hypocrisy that we talked about last week. The stating what we believe and our behavior and those two things conflicting with each other and not matching. It's the slow fade, but the slow fading of taking our eyes off of Jesus is happening. And it's not that our faith blows up overnight. It's little choices and patterns that we make along the way where our eyes are being fixed in a different location. And so the slow fading is taking our eyes off of Jesus and it's finding our worth and value in things that were never intended to give us worth and value. The thing that Jesus gives us. And so when we say drifting away, we're talking about some serious stuff here. So what do we do? What do we do when this happens? When we find out that we're drifting or we find out that we have drifted and we feel like we've blown it and it feels like maybe we're going down and wave after wave is just blasting us. I've got a couple things for us this morning um, that's gonna take us a little bit of time to get through. Okay, the first thing is if, if you look up and things don't look right and things don't feel right and there are areas of your life that really aren't aligning with the word of God and you begin to see all these little micro compromises in your, in your, in your daily walk, you're like, man, how did that happen? And you're being, you can feel, man, I'm being dragged down. I'm being dragged away. The choices that I'm making, these are not choices that I would have I made two years ago or seven years ago. I'm actually making choices that are in confliction with the, the faith that I say that I have. So if we look up and we begin to see that we're being dragged down in a way, let's just recognize that we're drifting let's just own it like God, like God I confess man like I did not want to be where I'm at but I'm here this is the reality I'm just going to own it the temptation for us is when we find ourselves in a situation where we have sinned it is to blame somebody else or to deflect attention away from ourselves. because like let's get it like let's, let's be honest nobody likes to feel what we feel when we're going through sin 
right? And so we don't want to own it ourselves. We want to blame it. It was, it was, he did it or she did it. They caused me to do it. I didn't think that on my own. It was them who led me in that direction. We don't want to take blame for ourselves. We want to deflect it. And it starts early. I remember I was uh, walking, um, or Ashley and I, we were, we were living in, in Dallas, the seminary that I was going to, and we were living in the Mary Student Housing. We were on the 10th floor, and we had walked out. Like, Adeline was pretty brand new. She was like two, three years old, and I'm uh, just having a blast, having a blast of her time with her. And uh, Ashley had a doll that she loved as she was growing up, and the doll's name was Pokey, okay? And so Adeline was carrying Pokey down the hallway, and uh, so we're walking down the hallway, going down to the elevator, and somewhere along the way, like she trips and she falls and just like biffs it right there in front of everybody. And she gets up and she, she dusts herself off and she said, Pokey, you tripped me. Like, Pokey didn't trip you. Like, you just fell. And, and here's the thing. We start blaming people when we mess up or when something happens to us from a very early age. It's completely innocent, but it just happens. We start blaming because we don't want to feel like we did anything wrong. But the best thing that we can do is just own it for what it is. Because change in our heart that is necessary, it's not going to happen with deflection and putting it on somebody else. The change in our heart that's necessary, it starts with reflection and owning what's happened and owning our part. What's Jonah do here? He's thrown overboard and instantly he realizes, well, this is different. This is not the boat that I was on just a few minutes ago. Everything has changed. One minute his gaze is on Tarshish and the next thing he knows that his gaze is on seaweed that's wrapped around his face and neck. Everything has changed in his world. Look at verse one of chapter two. I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All of your ways and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So first of all, let's talk about the, the elephant in the room. Or let's get the big fish out of the, the room here, okay? Many people think that this story of Jonah being in the belly of a whale is fictitious, that it's not real, that it could have never happened, that scientifically this couldn't happen or physically it couldn't happen. Practically, this is not possible. Why on earth would anybody believe such a kid's fairy tale? I've heard comedians make fun of Christianity because we tend to believe that there was a man who messed up, who was thrown over a boat and who was swallowed by a whale or a fish, a great fish, some kind of sea creature. And so there's that that's going on out there. But there are folks who study the ocean, and I don't know what they call them, like ocean people, all right? Uh, people who study ocean stuff, and they've concurred that there are whales that have the capability of swallowing humans whole, right? There's things in the ocean that can do that. I don't know, like maybe that's why nobody in here goes to the beach, 
right? Like, because there's things in there that could just take you down whole, right? I don't know. But there are things in the ocean that have the ability and capability of swallowing a man whole. There's another suggestion that is thrown out um, is because God is orchestrating this whole thing, right? God sent the storm on the ocean. We know that's his sovereignty. God has caused him to be thrown over the boat. That's his sovereignty. And there is a huge fish that comes and swallows Jonah as well. And people say, well, that is God's sovereignty as well. Like if there, if there wasn't something that was big enough to swallow Jonah or to swallow a man whole, because God is sovereignly orchestrating this whole thing, God could create an animal that was big enough to swallow Jonah in this particular instance that nobody had ever seen before. So God is able to do that. That is not outside of his realm or, per, or his per, purview. There, um, and I think because scripture says that God appoints an animal, God appoints a fish to do this. The, the wording actually is uh, dag gadol in the Hebrew, which means a great fish or a great sea creature. Something, um, the Hebrews, like they were always trying to figure out what they were seeing, like to figure out words for some of these things. And so the verbiage here just lends like some great sea creature, something big that comes along. And so it could very well have been a, a big fish that God appointed and made for this moment. But there are others who say, that this is total allegory, that the whole thing is just a story, that yes, Jonah was a prophet of God, but this story actually didn't happen. Jonah wasn't thrown over a boat. Um, there wasn't a storm. This was just a story to say and to highlight God's grace and his compassion and his mercy. Now that's a, that's a way to look at it, but I don't think that's a correct way to look at it. I actually think this is very literal. I do think that Jonah was thrown over the boat. I think he was being judged by God. I think there was something that was happening here. But in the midst of it, I do think that God was highlighting his mercy, his grace, and his compassion. Because we're going to read a little bit later in Matthew 12 that Jesus actually refers back to this. And the, there are Pharisees or uh, religious leaders who come to him and they're asking for a sign. and say, do something, do something, do something. And Jesus says, listen. The only sign that you're going to get is a sign that you've already got. It's a sign of Jonah. He goes into the belly of a fish. He's there for three days. He gets spat upon the land. And then, then I, the son of man, it's going to happen to me too. I'm going to go to a cross. I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to, bury, I'm going to be buried into the earth. And then three days later, I'm going to be spit out from the earth. They don't understand what he's saying, but he's hearkening back to what happened here uh, to Jonah. So if it never happened, I don't think Jesus would have talked about it. I don't think this would have been a reference. I think actually what's happening here was to point towards Jesus because scripture always is pointing towards Jesus in one way or another. So I think the story is real. And I think what's happening here is God is highlighting his mercy, grace, and compassion for the Ninevites, which is also gonna be a picture of his grace, mercy, and compassion for the Gentiles that everybody gets a seat at the table if they trust Jesus. Now pay attention here. Um, there are a couple phrases that I want us to, to look at. Um, God could have sent this large fish to snap Jonah out of the air as soon as he got tossed from the boat. Like Jonah could have been tossed and he could have been on his way over, not even put a foot into the water and a, God could have sent a fish and just snapped him up right there. Some of y'all like when you're fishing like that, right? You're bass fishing, you cast a lure out there and right before the, the lure hits the water or right as it hits, man, there is a, there is a bass ready to snap that thing and you take home a trophy, right? Some of y'all like that. God could have done this with Jonah before he ever hit, but he doesn't. He could have snatched him. There could have been no stress, no mess, no fuss, no struggle, but it doesn't look like that's what God does here. 
from what's written here for us, it looks like Jonah actually kind of floated around in the ocean for a little while before God stopped this so that he could experience what it was like to go under. Look at verse three. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. What Jonah is saying, like this brother, he is in the ocean. The waves and the billows. I don't know what billows are, but they're pretty important, apparently. The waves and the billows are swallowing up Jonah right now. Wave after wave are crashing over him again and uh, again. Uh, When I was in the army years and years and years ago, I went whitewater rafting uh, with some friends on the weekend. And any, any whitewater rafters in here? A few of you, like the first service, it was like almost, like it was uncommon if you didn't do it. But like uh, I went whitewater rafting uh, one time in my life. And I, you just need to know, just for reference, I know nothing about whitewater rafting now. I knew nothing about whitewater rafting then. But the one thing that I knew is I think that you were supposed to stay in the raft, right? Stay in the boat. I did not. Like the one that, like you're just supposed to do it. I didn't do it. I got knocked out and, and I went under the water. And man, I thought I was going down. Like it's the closest, like there's been a lot of near death experiences in my life. This was the closest that I actually felt like I was gonna die. I was under the water, I was smashing off the rocks. I couldn't get my head above the water. I just kind of kept rolling. I was like, what do you do? How do you get up? I was like, I didn't know how this is gonna end, but I guess this is how you end. White water rafting, no matter how I tried. It's the closest feeling that I can get to what Jonah might've been experiencing in this moment. Like he is dashing around. And there is no hope for him to get out. It's wave after wave after wave. And this brother is going under right now. Verse five says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Right now he's under the water at this point. The waves have taken him down. He's made it to the bottom of the ocean where the vegetation grows and it is wrapped around his face. I don't know how y'all feel about your face being touched and having stuff on you. But like, if I take my shirt off and my head gets stuck for like any more than two milliseconds, I'm like, ah, get it off. You know, I just feel like I'm about to go under, right? So Jonah right here, I can't imagine how scary this is. Like he's got stuff wrapped around his face under the water. He's already drowning. Now he's got stuff around his face. Verse six says, at the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh Lord, my God. Some commentators and scholars, they argue that at this point, Jonah actually died. That in the ocean, like he didn't live through the whole experience. That he, he died in this moment because he's talking about crossing over into the land of the dead, which would fit with what we were just talking about with Matthew 12, with what Jesus was saying when the religious leaders were questioning him. He said, the sign that you're gonna get is the sign of Jonah who goes under. And Jesus very well could have been talking about being dead for those three days because he was going to go into the earth and be dead for three days and nights. Now, of course, all scripture is always going to point to Jesus. And so if Jesus died to show grace, mercy, and compassion to those who would trust in him to get salvation to the Gentiles, not only to the Jews as well, to create a way forever, to break down a barrier, to break down a wall. If Jesus did that and he's pointing back to Jonah in this moment, as an example, he very well could have died in this moment. So whether he feels like he is about to die or whether he actually died in this moment, either way, he's in a pretty tight spot. It's a serious situation. And here's the question. 
why wouldn't God relieve him from that? Why, didn't, why wouldn't God just snatch him right up instead of letting him experience this burden and trauma? Why wouldn't it happen immediately? I've been asking myself that like all week as I've been studying this and trying to wonder like, and he could have. Why did he let him go through this? Um, well, I, I could totally be wrong, but I think maybe at least for two reasons. Um, and I'm open to being wrong. Uh, first, I think that maybe so he could understand the weight of disobeying a holy God. So that he can understand what has actually happened here. God had given Jonah a clear call. He said, arise, go to Nineveh, go to that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And, and I, sometimes I think maybe that we don't get it. Just, just as human beings who are trying to follow God, who are trying, in, in our world, like we're trying to follow Jesus, sometimes I just don't think that we get it be, because um, we can't physically see God right now. We see the effect of God. We know what faith looks like. We see uh, Christ in other believers and, and we see the effect that believers have in our lives and around the world and what Jesus does in our, but we can't physically see him right now. And maybe that messes with our mind a little bit. And so in that God gets reduced to this man behind the curtain in the Wizard of Oz. You guys familiar with the Wizard of Oz? So like, like we, we, God gets reduced to this guy who's back here pushing buttons or, or twisting knobs or pulling strings to make things happen. But like, like he's there but like, I can't see him. So is he really there? Does he really care about what's going on in my life? Guys, we're not telling little white lies to the guy on the street who's asking us for five bucks and we just say, we don't have cash. We're, we're not telling little white lies to random people here. When we sin, it is direct disobedience to God. This isn't just one of our friends this is just somebody that we bump into at the grocery store, but we are sinning against a holy, perfect, righteous in all of his ways kind of God. We are sinning against the creator and the designer of the world who's in control of all things. Right now, there are seven to eight billion people on the earth. That's right now. There have been billions and billions and billions of people who have lived on this earth and he has always been in control of all of that. And so when we sin, this is the weight and the holiness of God that we are sinning against. It's not just some man behind a curtain pulling strings and pushing buttons. And Jonah, he wants Nineveh to experience the wrath and the weight of a God like this for their disobedience. Yet all the while he is openly defying the same God. He wants them to feel that, but he doesn't see the sin that's going on in his own life. He wants to judge them, but doesn't want to be judged. And so God is letting Jonah feel the impact of his choice. I think maybe the second reason is that maybe he's just waiting for Jonah's desperation to become an act of dependence, to actually begin to reach out to him. Because in this moment, like, doesn't Jonah feel like he's right? Jonah feels like he's the one who's in the right. Now, he would have never have left um, uh, and gone to Joppa to get a ticket to go to Tarshish if he felt like he was wrong. He felt like in this moment, he knew better than God that the Ninevites, they didn't deserve grace. They didn't deserve mercy. And so because of that, God is wrong. I'm right, I'm leaving. And here's the deal. When somebody is convinced that they're right, no matter how wrong they might be, it's hard to pull them out of that. Jonah needed a minute to believe that God was right. Jonah needed a minute to get his theology back in order that God was in charge and Jonah wasn't in charge. Um, let's think about this from the parenting perspective, okay? If you've got kids, um, or maybe you can remember back to when you were a kid, uh, we often said, uh, have said, or we've often heard uh, a phrase like this. 
go to your room and think about what you yeah anybody say that this week anybody say it like yeah go to your room and think about what you did uh, uh, do you remember did your parents hit you with that one when you were growing up yeah <laughs> I was like every day I was in my room thinking about what I did I don't know if I ever remember what I did from the child's perspective kids hate that don't we like when we were kids we hate that we didn't want to go to our room we didn't want to go to our room and think about nothing like we go to our room and think we're just thinking about the injustice to the freedom that we have as human beings we're going to our room we're thinking about how ridiculously right we are and how insanely absurd our parents are for being wrong right like that's what we were going to like is that just me all right that's how I went to my room. My parents are idiots. They don't know what they're doing. But my daughter is in the back of the room. Um, so from the parental side of things, here's what we're hoping. <laughs> Looking at you. Here's what we're hoping from the parental side of things if we send our children to our room. Aren't we hoping for heart change? Are we hoping that they would go to the room and really think about what's happening in their heart and how their disobedience is affecting not just you, but it's affecting them and it's affecting their relationship with the Lord. It's affecting their hearts. And we're hoping that at some point there's gonna be this heart change that takes place. And we are waiting for the desperate dependence that comes from waiting in their room. Like what's gonna happen to me while I'm up here? Is, is there some other consequence that's gonna come to me while I'm up here? So there's there's desperate situation and we're waiting for them to become dependent on their parents. Trusting that maybe, maybe we know what we're doing every once in a while. And we don't always get it right. Sometimes we're making it up on the fly, right? But we do know what we're doing sometimes. And for Jonah, God is over here. He's saying, Jonah, I just want you to look at me. I just want you to fix your gaze on me. Not glancing at me, everyone. I want your gaze to be on me. I want you to see how hard your heart has become. Jonah, do you see what's happening to you right now? And so first, I think we've got to realize that we're drifting and we just need to own it. We need to confess what's going on in our life. God, I've sinned against you. And the second thing I think that we have for this morning is I think that not only do we have to own it for sure, but I think, you know, admitting that we're wrong, it doesn't do anything unless you're making a decision to make sure that that doesn't keep happening again in the future. And so you don't just confess it and own it, but you got to repent. It's got to be repentance that takes place. And I think the idea of repenting, that it's gotten a bad rap over the years in Christianity, has it not? And I think it's because we've connected repentance to some worn out um, view of, of chains and, and legalism, of being chained down and I have to, have to do this. But repentance, it's never meant to be shame and chains. Repentance has always been a fruit of humility that leads us into lives of freedom and grace. Repentance has been this, um, somebody coming and opening up the, the jail cell door for you so that you can walk out in freedom and in forgiveness to experience that rather than the shame and the guilt that happens when we stay locked up in our sin. Repent, confession and repentance, turning away from that, sets us free to live in the freedom and the grace that God has given us. And so for our benefit, here's what repentance is. It's just saying, God, I messed up. I, I don't want to keep doing what I'm doing because I know this grieves your heart. And so right now I can't get a handle on it. Like it's out of control. And so would you help change my desire? Would you change the desire of my heart to help me want what you want for me? To help me want what you want for, for your creation? 
Would you help me to have the desire to follow after you and instead of keep following after the things that I'm following after? God, I need you because I can't do this. Repentance is confessing our sin and then it's turning away from it. It's choosing then to create healthy patterns and to put up guardrails in your life where maybe there's never been guardrails before. It's living in humility. It's believing that God has more for you than that thing that you're stuck in or that fear that's just been crippling that just you just can't get out of the cycle in your mind or that relationship or that whatever it is. It's believing that God has more for you than that. I've had tons of conversations with people over the years who've sat in my office or who sat in my car or has been in my house and who just told me what's going on in their life. And I said, man, Anthony, like this is, this is what's happening. And, and I listen and there are some people who's like, man, I just don't wanna do that ever again. And there's just full repentance and true repentance that takes place. And you just watch their hearts soften before the Lord and you watch them walk out in freedom. But then I've had people who have sit in the same place, who have confessed their sin, but they've never had a heart of true repentance because they just keep going after the same thing. They keep running back to it. There's no guardrails that's been put up. There's no new patterns that are put in their life. They end up walking in the pothole over and over again. I heard a story this week, I was talking with a guy and he said, it's like this. He said, uh, there's a guy who, who goes out of his house and he's on his way to work and he's got to walk down the, the sidewalk. He's walking down the sidewalk and there's a pothole. He doesn't see it. He walks into it and boom, smacks the ground, gets up, dusts himself off and then he heads off to work. Well, he goes home. Then he's got to get up for work the next day. He gets up and he gets dressed and he heads off to work and he heads down the sidewalk and uh, he looks down at the hole this time and then he just walks into it and boom, smacks the ground. It's like, ha, that hurts. And he gets up dusts himself off and he goes to work. And then he goes home, goes to bed, gets up and he's gotta to go to work the next day. He goes, same route, walks down the sidewalk, sees the pothole and is like, huh, looks down into it and gets sucked into it this time, hits the ground, boom. Gets himself up out of the hole, dusts himself off, goes to work, comes back home, goes to bed, gets up the next morning and starts to go out the door and walk through the same pathways. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not gonna go that direction this morning. And then he finally goes another direction. So he doesn't hit the pothole. That's what true repentance looks like. It looks like I'm making a choice to not go down the same patterns and the rhythms that I've gone down that have landed me at the bottom of a pothole that damages myself and it damages people around me. And that, you probably feel that from time to time in your own life to some degree or another because we all have areas of sin we all have certain struggles that are, tend to be a weakness for us that if we're going to fall, that's kind of the thing that we deal with. That's probably gonna naturally, uh, that we're naturally gonna cave to that thing or that's the thing that Satan's gonna use to tempt us, right? That's the thing that he uses to draw us in. And you've confessed it and you've confessed it and you've confessed it over and over and over, but have you truly repented of it and moved away from it and turned your back on it? Jesus said, in Luke 15, he said, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What Jesus was saying in Luke was that there are people who think that they've got it all together. They think that they've got it all figured out. They don't, they don't need to repent because they've not done anything wrong or the thing that they've done wrong, they've got it all figured out themselves. But he says, there is joy in the repentance of the one who knows that they don't have it all figured out. Who comes to me and said, I've blown it. I've blown it. And Jesus, I need you. Look at what 
happens in verse 7 of Jonah 2. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah is saying, I remembered who you are. I remembered your holiness. I remembered you in the temple. And when I see your holiness, I can clearly see my sin. I've got my theology back in place. It's not Jonah temple. It's not the place that I dwell. This is the holy place of God. This is where he sits. He is over all. He's saying, I remembered who you are and I saw you in your holy temple. He sees his sin for what it is. Now, if God is just another bro on the street, why would anybody stop doing anything? Why would anybody limit any of what we call our freedom? But if he's holy and if he's righteous and he's perfect and our sin is reflected and set up against his perfection, we see it for what it is. Jonah right now, he is in a tight spot and he is repenting. It's often at the end of our rope that we find God, isn't it? Man, why isn't it ever at the beginning of the rope? You know, like I want a rope. I just want to flip the rope over and be like, you know what? I'm going to experience God on this side before I go through all this calamity in my life. I don't want all this garbage. So like, give me the front end uh, of the rope before the drama and the blowups start happening. But it's when we, when everything feels hopeless in our life and we throw up our hands and we say, well, what else can I do? And boom, that's where God shows up, isn't it? There's a Presbyterian pastor in the mid uh, 1800s and going into the 1900s. He was a missionary also. His name was John H. Augie. He said, God brings men to deep waters, not to drown them, but to cleanse them. God brings men to deep waters, not to drown them, but to cleanse them. You know, a lot of times we think that God takes us to these places because he just wants to be done with us. He brings a challenge because Um, Well, you've been naughty and you're always going to be naughty. And so I'm going to be completely done with you. Jonah isn't in the water because of God's desire to be done with him. Jonah is in the water because God still wants to use him. He's in the mess because God's not done with him. And so if you're in some kind of garbage that you're just like, man, why am I going through this? You need to know, just like Jonah, if you're in the deep end and God has thrown you into that space, he's not done with you. He wants to cleanse you and use you. Jonah is down here, like led there by God, seaweed wrapped around his head, not to drown him and kill him off, but because he wants Jonah to turn around and to repent so that he might experience what true life is like. This is an opportunity for Jonah to have a fresh start. One life ends and he's starting a new life. He's got a fresh start. Don't we all want a fresh start? Haven't we all needed a fresh start at some point in our life? You might even be at the point right now, you're like, man, it's been terrible. It's been terrible. I I want a fresh start. I want Jesus. And maybe that day is today for you. So I I think in his heart of deep repentance and a heart of dependence, what happens is we own it, we confess it, and we repent. And then we choose to have new healthy patterns as we move forward in forgiveness and grace. Look at verse nine. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah says, this is it. My heart is done. I will sacrifice. I will do what I have vowed to you. In verse three, Jonah, he acknowledges that God has caused the storm, that God has appointed this great fish to come and to swallow him up. God has caused and appointed trauma in Jonah's life in order to get to his heart. I don't know how you guys roll in the evenings, um, but uh, in our house, 
Uh, if you were to kind of peek in in the evening on an evening that we're not running around from place to place to place or event to event, if you got kids, you know how that works, right? Just whatever. And then if we finally get a moment to, to be in the house, if you were to peek in, we'd be sitting on the couch, maybe, and watching um, something on the television as a family. Not disconnected from each other, but we'd sit there maybe watching a show together. And right now we're working ourselves through season three of The Chosen. Anybody watch The Chosen in here? There's like me and one other person in the first service. Um, so we are like, oh, no, you don't do the chosen. It's not scripture, okay? But it helps paint in some color around. It gives us a good view. Anyway, we love the chosen in our house. We're in season three. It's amazing. But when we watch TV, there is somebody always in our house. We get about two minutes into a show after everybody's got to go to the bathroom. Like, I gotta go to and then we're sitting there. And then two minutes in, somebody's like, you know what? It's a great idea. Like, we should have some popcorn. You're like, okay. And then somebody goes, like, usually it's my daughter, uh, Adeline. She's always, she is my popcorn girl. Like, she could just take it, take, no, yeah, anyway. She eats a lot of popcorn. And we love it in our house. And so we'll sit there and we'll eat popcorn and watch the show. But popcorn, to me, it's fascinating. You know how popcorn pops? Popcorn, uh, you can't eat it just in the kernel by itself, right? Because that's good news for dentists. They'll, you'll go to the dentist. Um, it's too hard. Something has to happen in order for you to get the goodness out of that kernel of popcorn. It needs heat. It needs pressure. You have to put it under intense heat and pressure to get the goods from the inside to the outside. And once the heat is hot enough, there's something that's happening inside of that kernel that builds up pressure. And inside that pressure, it finally gets too much and that kernel can't handle it. And the kernel, it pops. And you got this piece of amazing popcorn that you get to eat. All the goodness now that was the inside now comes out. Jonah needed this heat. He needed this storm. He needed this time in the water to get his heart. He needed this pressure so that it might push the beauty of repentance outside of him. So that it wouldn't say locked up inside. In verse 4, he says, I will look again to your holy temple. The pressure has popped. And the beauty is coming out. Repentance is happening in his life. I've messed up, but I'm turning my eyes back to you. Guys, when God brings a storm into your life, the only one who can change it is God. Nothing else is going to change that. He's going to say in verse 8, don't turn to idols. Don't go for self-help. Don't turn to things that, that got you in trouble to start with. Don't run to the bottle. Run to God. If God caused the storm in your life, only he can stop the storm in your life. And he does it through confession and repentance and owning it. And then he helps you create new patterns in your life. So what do we do when we find out that we've blown it or that we're drifting away? We own it, we confess it, and we move forward with different daily rhythms. And we all have certain things that we do. We all have certain rhythms to our life. But let me suggest maybe that there might be a change. Starting asking the question in your life, where do I want to go? Or what do I want to be when I grow up? What does God want to do inside of me? If I want to grow up in my relationship with Jesus, I have to start my day with him. I have to be in the middle of my day with him. I have to be at the end of my day with him. He has to be my life. If you want to grow up in maturity, it's not just a piece of Jesus. It's not just a part of Jesus every once in a while. It's not just doing our own thing and doing our own will and then asking, God, would you bless this? Would you bless this life that I'm now beginning to create or this thing that I'm beginning to do? I'm living, you know, and then God here, would you do that? But let me challenge you to confess your sin this morning. 
to repent of your sin this morning. Let me invite you to live life differently than maybe you've been living it to this point. To have a fresh start, to start new, to choose lives of repentance, to have a life of confession, to have a life of responsibility to the scriptures and to the Lord and how we live. Let me invite you to turn your eyes towards Jesus. Um, you know, on Sunday mornings we gather. And <laughs> we're wrapping up, guys. I know, it's hot, it's time to go. On Sunday mornings we gather here as a, as a family. As a family of believers and, and friends who are wanting to know maybe more about Jesus in the scriptures. And it can feel arbitrary and it can feel tried as something that we just do. But when we open up the word of God, we're expecting him to do something in us. We're expecting it not to return void. When we gather in church, like this is not just something. Like we are, we are, we're here to hear from God. We're here to be in his word together. And God's word changes us if we allow it to change us. And so there is a call to repentance in Jonah's life, but there's a call to confession and repentance in our life too. And so what I wanna do is us for not to, us not to walk out of these doors just like any other Sunday, I came in and I checked the block. But for us as a body, to enter into confession and to repent together. I don't know what you're carrying. I don't know what you're going through, but the Lord Jesus does. And so we're gonna have a, a minute here. I'm gonna invite the team to go ahead and come on to the stage. Um, they're, gonna play, uh, they're gonna play some song in the background or whatnot. And then we're, then we're gonna sing together. But for the next couple of minutes, I just wanna invite you to do some business with the Lord. And if there's stuff in your heart that you've gotta confess, then confess to the Lord. Let him, he's not taking you to the deep end to drown you. He's taking you so he might cleanse you. So there might be work done in your heart, so he might soften your heart, so something might be done in you. And if there's, you've confessed something and there's not been true repentance where you've turned away from the thing that just keeps dragging you down, you say, Lord, like, man, would you give me the ability, like give me your desire, change my heart, put people around me to be in community to help in this area. And so we're just gonna take some time to, to, to confess here and repent and just enter into uh, something that I think is just beautiful before the Lord. And so I'm gonna pray and I love you guys and um, then let God do some work. Lord Jesus, there is nothing perfect in the words that I said, um, but your word is perfect and you are perfect. And so I pray that you would perfectly do work in here this morning. Father, for uh, men and women who don't yet know you, I pray that this would be the day where they step into a relationship with you. Brand new start. Laying their sin at your feet, confessing and repenting and asking you to do miraculous work. For my friends in the room too that I've already trusted Jesus, my brothers and sisters in Christ, who are just stuck in sin. God, I pray that you would set them free of that right now. That they would confess it and be set free. And I pray that they would repent and turn away from that and experience the freedom and the grace that comes in walking in a new pattern of life. And so Father, would you lead us into that place right now as we just bear our heart and our soul before you who already knows. But Lord, just let us lay it before you, I pray in Jesus' name.